and Freddy pulls her mom through a tiny window. In honor of Carol, what is the best last shot in a movie? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, because what is human love but a train going through a tunnel? It's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to go with Fight Club, because I remember the flash frame of a penis, and then my dad loudly got up out of his seat and said, all right, I'll be outside. (laughs) (laughs) I I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, because in that final frame, Indiana Jones, Henry Jones, and Marcus Brody ride into the sunset towards the kingdom of the Crystal Skull. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I'm David yes, Ehrlich, that's what happens. And I'm going to go with How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, which uh, makes good on a movie's title like the ending of no other film ever has. How did that Frenchman taste? Delicious. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 96 for Tuesday, November 17th, 2015. Still, for now, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Before we get started, David, I know we still have a plethora of reviews to choose from. And thank you all for writing those reviews. But uh, I think you chose one to share mm. today. Yeah, from Dave. I'm assuming it's a different Dave. It doesn't nah, have a seven mm-hmm. in its name. So My favorite Dead pop giveaway. culture. I haven't read this review. I'm reading it live. We're, we're doing an experiment here in real time. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Uh, fuck it. We're doing it live. <laughs> My favorite pop culture podcast. So this review has been a long time coming. I have listened to Fighting in the War Room for some time. And for some reason, I've not written a review. This show is the perfect balance. They are legitimately more well-known than most of the podcasts that I listen to. We are. But they never big-time their audience. They actually respond to their listeners. Imagine that. The usual crew of Dave Seven, Patches, David, and Katie are all just excellent. Dave Seven gives a very different perspective from the usual podcaster, with a personal history steeped in all kinds of geekery. Patches genuinely seems like you are listening to a friend talk about movies and television. A totally enjoyable experience. David Ehrlich, where do I start? I have to say that I rarely agree with his views, yet he presents them so well. I can honestly say that I respect the hell out of the work that he puts in, even if it angers me. And Katie Rich. Katie is... Drink every time someone calls Katie the glue. Katie is the glue (laughs) that holds this show together. No offense to the other fine members of this podcast team, but if Katie left, I might not continue to listen. Damn. Damn right. She has the perfect balance of intelligent, researched opinions and fun, real experience. I cannot imagine not listening to this podcast, and I hope this team is able to put out more and more content. Keep up the good work. <laughs> content? We don't put out content. We put out shows. Thank you very mm, much, Experiences. Dave. That was a wonderful review. Clearly, that we need lovely. to be big-timing our audience more. I, wanna, I know. I wouldn't how even do know how to do that. I, I think like, <laughs> big-time Pee-wee tells us it involves joining the circus. <laughs> Uh, if anyone tips for how we can start big diving, let us know. I would uh, let's have a Kickstarter to have us all join the circus. I would support that. As Go big son. time! Yeah. You're looking for your car, but you're all turned around. He's almost upon you now, and you can see there's blood on his face. My God, there's blood everywhere. Running for your life from Shia LaBeouf. He's brandishing a knife. It's Shia LaBeouf lurking in the shadows. Hollywood superstar Shia LaBeouf. 
As we record done. this, it's been almost a week since Shia LaBeouf uh, first sat down inside the Angelica Theater in New York City and uh, put on a marathon of all of his movies in reverse chronological order. And I kind of thought I was sick of talking about this. Like, I watched the live stream of hashtag all my movies for a couple of days, like many film people that I know. Uh, but then an interview with Shia and his two collaborators went up on the website New Hive, which is what had hosted the live stream. And it was really fascinating. I mean, it was kind of pretentious in parts. And has yeah, wait, of- who conducted that interview? It's oh, unclear. the guy who runs New Hive. It's the he has a name. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of artsy farsi talk in there. But there's also a lot of really genuine expressions of how happy the entire experience made Shia LaBeouf. And this is something that I thought that I had noticed while watching it, like during the Even Stevens movie, especially. Uh, Shia got into the movie. He was laughing. He was wiping away tears at some point, which you know, whatever. But the audience was like clapping along with him. And the fact that he was reflecting on this as exactly the kind of positive experience that I had felt like I'd watched on the live stream made me feel really warmly about this whole thing. Like what he said at the end of it is that he wanted to remind people of the human side of him. Like he said, the quote is once you press play on your life and you open up and there's that vulnerability and not only are people getting the artistic side of you, but they're getting the human side of you watching that you've shared everything. And I really feel like he succeeded if that is indeed the, you know, crazy art experiment he was going for. Like he made himself visible as a human being, like suffering through Transformers Two and being <laughs> suffering kind of through Transformers Two. He slept through Transformers Two. Well he said, well, like he yeah. has a whole quote being like, I went and took a nap because I hated myself so much. Like that and people knew that that was why Plus I did he it. Slept. I mean well, I mean many what's of us weird about his quote too. is that you know, his intention, I guess he, he makes it perfectly clear that it's about him. Like he wanted to show his human side, not the human yes. side of of people watching movies or as artists, you know, it's it's specifically about him. That's that strikes me as a little odd, but well, I, I, you know, I also think it was you know uh, an artistically uh, uh, viable experiment. I, I, I was fascinated you, by it. Did you think that when it first began? That's like one of the things I found fascinating about this is that the opinion really shifted mm. over the course of this no, event. yeah, when Rolling I, Stone I trust... published an article calling it genius. Well, I yeah. think before then I was I was in. No, I, I, I buy into that stuff pretty early. I, I'm not angry at Shia for going like full uh, Abramovich, if you will. Uh, I, I, you know, artists have to fall. Yes, but people should not use that term, but I get what you're like. You're talking about the and his previous artwork, including all my movies. His yeah. uh, sitting in the same room with somebody. Right. Yeah, he, I am sorry. I well, like this, I, I do think spiraling out of control brought him to this, uh, this, this installation, this performance of some sorts, and and that that was a little artificial. How he got here, how he's exploring it, has always rung a, a little untrue. And I think there have been several articles by people who've dismissed, or art critics specifically, who dismissed Shia's previous attempts to do kind of bold performance art and really bought into or accepted, embraced uh, all hashtag all my movies. Um, but I don't know. I, I really, from the minute it began, it was it was mesmerizing, right? We just wanted to watch him watching it because it was so. It was it was a great vantage point for a camera. You don't get to see that live very often. What what 
you never get to see it. Where else have we seen something like that? And it's so that immediately strikes me as as viable as uh, uh, having integrity. I don't know. I, I, people who question him seem to already have very serious <coughs> thoughts about Shia, which really, how can you develop very serious thoughts about Shia? Well, but I had, I really questioned at first, like, I thought the whole I am sorry thing was pretty ridiculous and self-indulgent, especially when it seemed clear that he was kind of orchestrating crying behind that bag with every single person who walked in there. At least multiple people reported on basically Right, and he came out and said he was raped. It was very oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, serious. God, yeah. I mean, he was real, and he was doing this all, like, you know, this fake apology tour for this thing that he legitimately Whoa. cribbed off of another artist. And this felt, I think because of the personal narrative of it, like, Patches, like you said, like, because it's about him, it had this other value to it. Like, it made the whole process of watching him, him watch himself. See, I think that you guys are, are I don't know. I, so, I, so, a big part of what I think this whole project is about is uh, assigning our own understanding onto somebody else's experience, uh, experiments, uh, art, etc. Um, I think that's part of, as I wrote about in, in that article I sort of tongue-in-cheek referenced earlier, I think that so much of what Shai has been doing that sort of culminated in this is about uh, reflecting his public persona, be it his on-screen persona or his celebrity, uh, versus the unknowable self that is him and I think that a large part of this project that he does touch on in this interview uh, is about sort of mediating the, the physical presence of the artist, mediating their screen presence, um, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic. It sort of flips it on its head. I mean, typically, I'll remember the first week of film school, uh, the documentary professor was live streaming at then at that point, uh, this archaic point in time. It was just a cord connected to. A camera that was showing his lecture live as it happened on a screen behind him, and he was observing how everyone's eyes were naturally magnetized to the screen rather than the actual professor there. And this flipped that on its head. I mean, everyone was sitting there in the screen watching these movies projected in front of all of us, but at least for the most part, and certainly the part that I was there for, everyone seemed to be focusing on Shia LaBeouf in, in the flesh. I think so much of these are about what you can't... Um, when you, the things that you can't assign him on our own, the the motivations and the understandings. I, that's why I thought his interview was so interesting because uh, it was very Shia centric. It was very much about his experience, which I think is sort of in keeping with this whole idea in that he can only speak for himself. Although he does sort of speak for, he talks about the love that he felt, and I guess he felt that. But uh, you know, at the same time, uh, he is, as is often the case with artists, the last person whose take is uh, you know going to be the final word on. Well, that's um, why it's so weird to was. give a kind of post-mortem interview to this. I think it, it was important like it though, to, to make. I mean, because so much of his persona in doing this, he says like he, ne- he never said that he wasn't talking, but he also, for the most part, other than offering somebody a slice of pizza, really wasn't talking. And I think that um, there was this sort of cone of intimidation uh, around him that he's earned through his erratic behavior, in which I was saying that there are very few celebrities who could do this and have that bubble sort of pre-installed the way he did. Uh, And I think that he has been, whether through manufactured or genuine means, been building towards a a renewed sense of warmth. And so I I do think that this sort of postmortem where he really just admitted to his hippie roots, his his parents were these sort of hippies and talking about how uh, it was all about the love and the feeling and these people making friends and leaving with new contacts in New York uh, and how he was like, now we can order a Starbucks without uh, being ashamed of his name. Um, you know. <laughs> I find 
the details so endearing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, but I think that it's sort of him wanting to be liked. I think is yeah. uh, very important to this whole idea, and so. But I think he would walk away with. I mean, it. Yeah, I get really hung up on this interview and kind of shattering this isolated moment. I mean, Katie, you wrote about how it felt like boyhood to you, and I actually think that is kind of apt, especially because, you know, Dave, thanks to David and many people who were there posting the uh, schedule, we knew what movies he was watching at any given time. Mm-hmm. And the the collective conversation on, on Twitter just... We're backtracking with him. We don't need to be watching these films. We're experiencing them again through his, like, this reflection of him, which I find very fascinating. Like, we're watching him grow up, even though he's yeah. just sitting there kind of melting. Um, and that, that. Well, you're watching, really you're not watching him grow up. You're watching him grow young. It's like sure. uh, Benjamin yeah. Button more than anything else. Like well, Benjamin no, I, 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 I see it. it. I still see it as growing up. It's reckoning with your youth. It's almost like Tree of Life. It's a poem. It's really what I'm saying. The the experience of seeing his celebrity unravel and sort of this restorative process where he goes back, you know, not unlike Tree of Life, which is a fine reference point, where he sort of comes back to being a person who has not been diluted by his public image. That's that's what I mean, that there's growth through revisiting the Even Stevens movie, you know? Yeah. Shaking the Transformers movies away from you finally and recapturing something. Whatever spark got him into acting, you know, you see him in the Even Steven show and he's total goofball. He's so excited for life. Uh, that is not Charlie Countryman. <laughs> and the last that is- <laughs> movie that they showed uh, that I didn't really see anyone talk about, it's called Breakfast with Einstein. And it's a movie in which Cheech Marin voices a brilliant dog. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, so I was actually sort of sad that I didn't get to be there for that, but... Uh, Dave, you are outside of the New York film bubble a little bit, and you at least didn't, you know, get to go down to the Angelica. Did you? Were you as fascinated by this as the rest of us? I mean, it was more successful than hashtag I am sorry at uh, being an event that you could be far away from. Like it seemed yeah. like that was something that maybe would have worked if you were like in a room with Shia LaBeouf. But even then, you've committed to like driving somewhere or going somewhere with your friends which is like a different sort of artifice like my i thought i was just gonna check in on all my movies like once but the fact that the first time i checked in i like saw him begin to cry at something i was like all right maybe i'll check in with this every (laughs) once in a while and it it became easy to have that level of engagement with it uh and not necessarily have to you know delve into what it means or be be more of a part of an experience I think allowed him to participate with more people on that side of the piece or whatever since you, you know we couldn't all see uh, the, the, the rest of the theater or the movie that was actually playing even though you got to imagine it in your brain of or have other people tweet and tell you what was going on like there's a screenshot of the moment at the end of the Eden Stevens movie where he like scores a goal or something and like you see him with his like fists up in the air and like the rest of the audience cheering behind him and it's such a nice like I've never seen the Eden Stevens movie but it was such a nice thing to imagine Shia LaBeouf is a nice boy guys I really am really I'm still what pissed he wants off. To think. I'm still pissed <laughs> off that he slept through the Transformers movies he both of them or Revenge of the Fallen definitely they and were Dark at, like, for the Moon too in the morning. it doesn't matter he must see them. They're horrible. Oh, man. <laughs> you know he's seen them. He had to go to, like, the Beijing premiere or whatever. He walked out. Lots of people don't sit through their own movies. Man. I don't what know. does I've he think them. of the balls? The dangling robo-balls? <laughs> what of did Revenge he think of the, of the robot balls? Where was the God. screenshot for that moment? 
I had really forgotten about how bad the second Transformer was until you reminded me of the robot balls. Well, yeah. I mean, in addition to like the general badness Art. of those movies, aside from my thoughts about the third one, uh, that had writer strike issues. Yes. So it was really a doozy. And yeah, that's the reason. That's, yeah, that's why that was so when bad. the uh, when the writers uh, blamed Michael Bay for basically everything bad in it. Mm-hmm. But not Shia. He survived. Nope. Shia survived to live another day. He might be even doing better than Megan Fox these days. He was resurrected oh. in robot heaven. Is that a... <laughs> did that happen? Mm-hmm. It does happen, yes. Oh, God. Which movie was that in? That was End in of the Fallen. Christ. Exactly. Robot Christ. (laughs) (laughs) One thousand years ago this story starts There were four sorcerers with strong and wise hearts But Gryffindor from Wildmoor Veryvenclaw from Glen Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad Should Slytherin from Fen segment I have a very important topic uh, Lim Wama Miranda the uh, creator and star of Broadway's Hamilton has classified himself as a Slytherin on Twitter I find this surprising Dave as the most notable Slytherin in my life how do you feel about this I'm a Ravenclaw Shit, you me. are a Ravenclaw why do I always think you're a Slytherin well, because beard it's, it's, <laughs> I, I look I look I look kind of snapey occasionally and I think I'm you support close. power and ambition I'm close to because you're racist it's because you're racist let's yeah mostly because let's I'm cut the shit not all well, Slytherins <laughs> yeah that's right I understand uh, the the plight of the Slytherin and I was actually talking on Twitter to one of the uh, cover artists for the Lumberjanes comic book who was having a discussion with her followers about like why is there a house just for assholes and I'm like that's not that's not it and she's we have like, them in well, America like, they're called fraternities snap wow no. snap. Oh. snap yes well, I don't think anyone on this podcast was in a fraternity no they, well they may have had their heads stuck down fraternity toilets like I did sorry guys wait really you did no of course not wow. I was too cool for that mm-hmm. all right Dave <laughs> he would have pressed as a, charges as a Ravenclaw do you think that Luma Miranda's self-designation is accurate yes uh, I think he has the ambition uh, definitely and uh, is willing to like most people in show business uh, maybe maybe step on some backs to get there maybe not mm. intentionally but it's it's gonna happen he's in a cutthroat a cutthroat world but the people in Slytherin also have a uh, general like natural talent for wizarding uh, or in this case that's true uh, that's like, true so it's like there's there's super talented and ambitious because they can fulfill those ambitions it's just they tend to be tempted by power because that's what, that's what they want so it can be wielded responsibly Slytherin's not a bad house it's just the movies cut out a lot of the Slytherins that didn't turn into like Death Eaters so uh, this the is why the Harry Potter movies are not it's also good. very political I guess that's why the about- Harry Potter uh, yeah, yeah. Do you think that uh, uh, Severus Snape would say he's not throwing away his shot? <laughs> is that a sure. line from the musical? Yes. That is a line from the musical Hamilton, so, which is available on Spotify. I was about to say, so you ha- you have you seen the it. show yet? I have seen the show. Okay, because a lot of people 
have not seen seen the show, I guess, and are just listening to the album. Which it's I, not like I a moral kind of failing. Like yeah. no, the, no. the show it is, is perfectly fine dollars. not to have seen the show. Yeah, it's, it's perfectly and like the entire album is sung through. It's like Les Mis, so like you right. can get like the moral failing so much is of it liking the shit music, but. No, wow. Yeah, David, you're so wrong about that, but that's <laughs> So okay. I should listen to Hamilton without seeing the show? I think it, well, I mean, unless you have plans to buy tickets, like, you won't see it for I mean, a one year day, at maybe. Least, so why not listen to All it? All right, fine. Uh, so we didn't really come here to talk about Hamilton, but to have Dave, as our Harry Potter houses expert, uh, sort of sell into Harry Potter houses. Yeah. Katie, you, uh, you're going to go into Hufflepuff. Yes! I, Hufflepuff's for life. I think, I think that fits... Uh, I really feel I really felt like I self actualized when I realized what how is much what is the I reasoning? Was. What does Hufflepuff? I mean, they're like weirdos, right? Well, okay. Should I give my reasoning or should Dave give his? You should give your reasoning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> as if we agree. The Hufflepuffs are well; they're the glue that holds society together. I'd say, which uh, many of our podcast listeners would agree that I am. Uh, they live near the kitchen, so they like food. I like people to have a good time and to eat well, and uh, they want to support everybody in their ambition. I don't want to be the one taking all the glory. I just want to help everybody uh, achieve what they want to achieve, which I think is what Hufflepuffs do. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, that's very You're accurate. An yeah, we're the backbone of society. The glue, if you will. The glue. <laughs> glue. Patches, you get to be you get to be a Gryffindor. Yeah, I thought I'd be Hufflepuff. I thought I was too weird for Gryffindor. No, no, I think I think you're good. Gryffindor's got some weirdos. Yeah, That's I true. think uh, you know you're you're definitely. I could see you being a long bottom in your younger years, but you would age into your your wizarding your wizarding well. Hey, long bottom looks that, hot uh, now, right? Patches, I think you are the one who is most likely to like wade into Twitter with some bold argument. You kind of have that fearlessness about you. Yeah, and chivalry is also one of the on Twitter. Chivalry is one of the uh, badges of a Gryffindor, which is often forgotten. I kind of have a yeah. Harry Potter haircut, at least for like, <laughs> ch- uh, what was the fourth one? Goblet of Fire. I have the Goblet of Fire haircut right now. I really need a haircut. You should get a haircut yeah, that's, then. That's 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 too long. And I'm sorry I offended if anyone uh, earlier about sticking heads in toilets. I've been there. Don't worry. Not and in college. Dave- High school. <laughs> All right, what's David? David's <laughs> going to get banished to Mahatakoro, the Japanese wizarding school of magic. Whoa. Unexpected. Unexpected. <laughs> I, was, I was debating uh, letting him join me in Ravenclaw, and then I thought <laughs> maybe maybe he is a Hufflepuff, a secret Hufflepuff that looks that, that it appears like bookish and thoughtful. And then I was like, well, Slytherin, but I don't see like that necessarily hard, ambitious drive. It's more like a falling upwards. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna send you to a completely different school. That is awesome. I've been falling Jap- upwards my entire life. I think Japanese wizarding school is perfect. Yeah, I, I think I'd be happy there. Yeah. Did they and come to the Goblet of Fire? Uh, no games. They no. Didn't no. It was just the ones from France. French. The Goblet of Fire was very Eurocentric. Yeah. But we have a whole opportunity to learn about uh, other wizarding houses in uh, Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Yeah, when I get apparently Americans are assholes. Really? Yeah. Why? They call non-magical people nomads. Yeah, nomads is some wicked it's slang, aw- bro. That is awful. It's awful. Nomads. The one thing that I'm really super psyched about is one of the characters is like a accomplished legilimens, so she could read minds. And that's like the one thing that Harry Potter wasn't good at. And I'm like, ooh, if J.K. Rowling is going to use these movies as like ways of expanding the world in ways that are better than oh, no match. Really, you're then excited I'm, about I mean, J.K. Rowling doing something to expand the world of Harry Potter. 
Right. Yeah, because we wanted right. like a cool Pottermore that we didn't get, and we wanted like a wizarding no. encyclopedia that we didn't get. So like, like a drink yeah. every time Dave is excited about world building. Yeah. Oh. I, I'm, I join you in being I would love a about drink. world building Thank in you. this case. <laughs> So as Patches has pointed out on Twitter, I think, I don't think we talked about it in last week's episode, but there were three movies last weekend uh, released by major studios and directed by women, which I don't know if that's never happened before, but it seems extremely unlikely that that has happened before on one weekend. I mean, usually you get one or two studio releases directed by a woman per year, if you're lucky. Uh, one of them was By the Sea, the Angelina Jolie-directed film that we reviewed last week. And one of them was The 33, a drama about the Chilean miners who got trapped in real life. Miners uh, with an dr- O, right? Yeah, no, miners, miners with, with a, an e. Miners with an E. Caught you. <laughs> ah, oh, damn. Spelling. Um, that's directed by Patricia Riggin. That was, who that was made, my bad. Uh, that was my Under bad. the Same Moon. And there's other movies that she's made that aren't coming to mind right away. Um, and then there was this movie, Love the Coopers, which is kind of like a Christmassy... Really know what the difference is between this and the Family Stone? It has Diane Keaton in it. I think this is like an alt universe version of. <laughs> this looks like a sequel to a movie I hated, but it's not, is it? Yeah. Uh, no, it is definitely an original movie, or at least not a sequel to anything. Uh, and it's directed by Jesse Nelson, who has uh, worked as a screenwriter. And his last film was I Am Sam, which uh, got Sean Penn an Oscar nomination. So. That's something. Uh, anyway, none of these movies did all that well at the box office, and I didn't even see two of them. I only saw By the Sea. And uh, Patches had asked me, and I you know, did take it seriously as a question, like, as someone who wants women to be more prominent directing films in Hollywood, do I need to see these movies? Like, do we need to, like, support and see these movies, even if they're bad, to make sure that women are still able to keep getting jobs because box office is kind of what determines what your next job is going to be. I'm not a good friend for asking you these questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a fair question, but I also don't think it's I don't think it's true. Like, I kind of reject the notion that women are this special class in which we have to come out and support them no matter what. I think that's kind of a further marginalization in a way because it's like you pat someone on the back for like, oh, you may, you managed to make a movie. That's great. Let's go support it. Um, but at the same time, if no one goes to see Love the Coopers and The 33 and By the Sea, then how are more women going to get directing jobs? It is kind of like on an individual level, I don't feel personally like I, ha- like I have to support them, but I do feel like these movies need to get supported for women to be able to work more. Well, you know, it's idealistic of me to say that their box office performance should have no bearing on whether or not more like it, the fact that women are being uh, championed, hopefully equalized. Uh, in the industry and elsewhere, should be independent of the success of the films they make because gender should just not be a factor in choosing a uh, a director for something. Um, and that really is the hope. I mean, I think the as you and I were saying over email, I think that the uh, the the eventual hope here is that you don't give a second thought to the gender of uh, the directors of these three films that underperformed that you didn't see because uh, the field is diverse enough and balanced enough that you don't have to. And, uh, you know, we're not there yet. Um, But it's an interesting conundrum because, like, I wouldn't, you know, you you are not duty-bound to see any of these movies or any movies, you know, in the first place. Uh, (laughs) But, of course, we're dealing with a very small 
we're, we're talking about a very small sample size here that we're extrapolating a much larger point from. It's not as if there are three films directed by women that are you know, significant films that come out every weekend uh, that you are routinely ignoring. It just so happened that in this weekend, where all of the releases were bad for the most part... Well, um, to be fair, what? there aren't many other female-directed studio movies that have come out this year. I, right. I think I can name two, The Intern and Fifty Shades of Grey, which have both done well. I feel... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like they're... More, but uh, female directed studio movies. I'll look through that. Yeah, I hope I hope there have been more. Uh, I know, I know. Two years ago, there was only was Frozen. Two years ago, that was the year where there were only four. Mm. I mean, it's funny because I, you know, when I think of the uptick in female directors, I think so much more about, I guess, the the independent scene. I mean, those are the things that tend to stick with me. I mean, who is really directing these? uh, these studio films, anyway, there com- are committees that are but, comprised yeah, but, of people. But part of the conversation is about women directing studio films, specifically. You know, Vulture put out this big list trying to stir the pot a little bit of a hundred female filmmakers that should be directing blockbusters. That's the request, right? And a lot of men have taken heat for. You know, Colin Trevorrow was slapped a thousand times by the internet for saying that. Uh, important female filmmakers are only making indie movies, so like leave this conversation about them directing blockbusters alone, and that was a huge misstep. Um, I think you're. It's a good point that I mean, like they need to be making these big movies that shape the culture in order to make their presence more profoundly known and cause bigger ripples um, and be considered for more jobs that are seen by more people. I think that is a, an important point. Um, I had hoped that. You know, Catherine Hardwick at the start of the Twilight thing would have kickstarted that in a way it didn't quite. Um, but yeah, I mean, you need to get to the point where a studio can. Why wasn't that a bigger problem? That she got replaced only by men yes. in Twilight. It's really because it's Twilight. It's hard to know what to. Well, no, I mean, no, yeah, but that's the bigger Twilight. reason. That's the bigger reason why it should have been a huge deal. That like. This is that a huge female property. But I think that Twilight so existed in its own ecosystem that it, it seemed, even for people that um, had a healthy desire to call these things out and, and explore them, that I think that it's just like, forget it, it's Twilight Town, you know? It's just like... <laughs> but that's, uh, yeah, I think it didn't have male support. Like, we didn't have men, not, not that men are essential to this conversation, but we need people inside. It might be different now if that happened yes. this year. Although, then again, Sam Taylor Wood got replaced by a man for Fifty Shades of Grey, and again, like, wait, but by Sam choice, Taylor by Wood, choice, I believe. But like, she left I mean, because she had creative differences with another woman, which is not. It doesn't mean they necessarily had to replace her with a man, especially a man who hasn't directed a worthwhile movie in like thirty years. But um, but he has made worthwhile movies. We should say, yeah, Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Gary is a pretty damn good movie in nineteen ninety one or whatever it was. Uh, well, if this movie can recapture the glory of nineteen ninety one, then I'm all in. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange choice. But um, um, two two female directed movies from this year that we uh, overlooked: Jupiter Ascending and Pitch Perfect Two, which is a really oh, right, big Pitch one because that two, movie yeah. was a huge, huge hit. And she is in demand. And she, oh yeah, and she's directing the she's sequel. She's directing uh, Pitch Elizabeth Perfect Banks. Two. We should say yes, Elizabeth Banks and Lana Wachowski, co-director of Jupiter Ascending. Which yeah. that's, I don't know if that's going to go places. I, I, mean, I, I, I don't just, know if that I franchise stray, is happening. She'll be making more Matrix movies in no time original question which is like should she have a should any of us really I mean Katie is a woman but any of us as people who would like to see women better represented behind the camera uh, feel an obligation to see these movies and I don't I'll know, make I mean, I'll, I'll I'll draw the devil's advocate line and okay. say general audience no 
us as people that talk to people about movies yeah mm. we probably should have even just if, mm. even if it was bad we had a conversation like this a few episodes ago on yeah, the thought bubble because we were sort of previewing uh <laughs> Jessica Jones, which uh, Joanna saw and did not love, really? and we were talking about how more superhero shows are, you know, sort of catching on to the backlash in that genre to not having a lot of strong females, Wait, and they're putting more Jessica strong females. Jones did Joanna see <laughs> the same the same amount of episodes? We'll talk you saw. about this at some point. I would be very interested to have you guys hash this I out. But like, I am very excited for Jeff. even though she, you know isn't really liking the way that females are being portrayed i give her credit because we're watching so many shows that are like trying to reckon with this problem so even if it's like hey it's not there we're encouraging people to watch it and talking about it critically my first impulse is that it's more valuable for me on a personal level uh you know as far as what i can do as one person to see by the sea and be frustrated at the uh, misogynistic undertones of referring to it as a vanity project and take issue publicly with that, as I did today in an article, than it is for me to waste $13, whatever the case might be, or two hours of my time, whatever, seeing the 33, which I heard for months was hot garbage. Yeah, but what about, like, you talk about wasting money on these films. Like, I'm, I, you did not see Love the Coopers, correct? No. But um, I'm Jewish. Where are the Jewish movies? Come on. <laughs> the night before. Yeah, but, I mean, weekend. then that's just about being a Jew on Christmas, and I have nice things to say about it. But well, uh, I'm just saying, like, anyway. you do you, you feel no pressure to see Love the Coopers, entertain it as something that could be good, um, and you feel no extra pressure because it's a female directed movie, despite that being something that you it's, consider important. Admittedly, it's hard for me because I'm so fucking enlightened. I'm kidding, everyone, but I uh, <laughs> no, but even in all honesty, like so many of my favorite filmmakers are women, and so many, and they always have been. Uh, it's a uh, it's one of the upsides of having a interest in foreign and independent filmmaking, and it also just happens to. It's not because I'm a more enlightened person. It just sort of dovetails with my sensibilities a lot of the time. I, uh, the Sofia Coppola's of the world, uh, they not to say that all women uh, direct in one way. Far from it, but. I, I have always been in touch with that side of myself, um, how to get out of this as best I can. Anyway, uh, it's it's never been something that I've had to contend with in, on that way. I don't know. But, like, I, so it ha- I have to remind myself that well, of Katie's point, that it is important to support these movies that, that uh, just as an ob- that is bigger than me, than just in a way that sort of pertains to the culture at large. And uh, well, because the, for the most part, the only female filmmakers it's possible to be fans of are the ones who have set up careers for themselves outside of the studio, like Sofia Coppola, like Lynn Ramsey, and except for the whole Jane Got a Gun mess, I guess. Yeah, except for, um, I'm just not a fan of many male filmmakers who are inside the studios. So it's like yeah, I mean that's fair, <laughs> but like I think that if you like if it is possible to become a notable female filmmaker who can operate inside the studio, like. Maybe we do have to embrace some of the growing pains that are going to come on the way there. I mean, well, I, mean the, I mean, the extent to which Selma was embraced, like I think, like many of us agreed, Selma is not a perfect movie, but I think it is embraced to a degree maybe greater than that if it were made by just a white filmmaker because it represents such a step forward in terms of voices to have on film. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a trickle down effect too. It's not just that David, you're advoc- you would be advocating for female directors making studio movies, but it's not like we see a lot of female voices at Sundance or something like that. I'm, you know, I'm trying to focus here on American film, and uh, we don't 
laud a lot of uh, female cinematographers, and we don't hear a lot about, you know, there are some, I, th- I think female producers are, are more powerful than ever, and they're taking prominence, and hopefully, you know, someone like Kathleen Kennedy has spoken out and said, we want a woman to make a Star Wars movie. Uh, no one has put the money where that mouth is, but maybe yeah. someday. Yeah, and she said that they have yeah. only made one tiny movie, I mean, I which think is that, like, a really bad thing to say. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible statement by her, by the way, to, to kind of... Yeah, but she's the person who just hired Colin yeah, Trevorrow. I, think I mean, obviously, are, after Jurassic World. I making but. very apt points, because, you know, I went to... When I was in film school, about 60% of my class were women, and I never thought twice about it, and I don't think anyone else did either. Yeah. But there's a big difference between recognizing on that level... Uh, an emerging and strong female presence and seeing it translated uh, without timidity to the sort of roles that Kathleen Kennedy is being a gatekeeper for. <laughs> you know, people yeah. like her. I think that there is a huge sea change that still has to happen. But I, I, I the idea of seeing the 33, which you knew <laughs> was shit, because it was directed by a woman, it's like, I want to go that far. I want to support that. But there has to be a better way. Well, may- maybe yeah. it maybe it's not necessarily going to see a, f- a film directed by a woman just because it was, but like recognizing the women working on these films and chasing, you know, if there's a female producer that's making these movies, you go see that. Like we talk about female directors all the time as if that's the only position that really matters, mm-hmm. and so many people just harp on it as uh, you know in the media on Twitter every time someone gets hired for a major blockbuster it's why did not well, you know why not women why not women but like who are the women working on that movie that's what should be well that was that that great fury. picture that they uh, tweeted from behind the scenes of ghostbusters where it was the women of ghostbusters and it was the cast backed up by you know the stunt people and the right. makeup department and the grips and you know who everyone was kind of holding up a sign of their job and that's a movie directed by a man that obviously has a really huge female presence behind the scenes which is really encouraging to see Do you and think those that- people those people will wind up making films Films that go to Sundance, like a, I'd say, eighty percent of people who make films at Sundance are a producer's assistant, a writer's assistant, a director's assistant. A lot of these positions rising up and making their own films finally because they have powerful friends in the industry. And if women don't get those positions, that that's that's key. Do you think so? Like I I, I see uh, how this trend of doing female versions of popular male-oriented pre-existing movies Mm. is a very backhanded step forward. However, uh, and it's one that creatively I have not really found to pay any dividends thus far and could not... Well, it's so far just has been the Ghostbusters one and a bunch of ideas that... Well, maybe maybe it's the ideas that I'm reacting to, but... And I think it's also a lot the fact that, like, I... The talk of Ghostbusters, men, women, transgendered people, I don't care. I don't care about Ghostbusters. My all cats... Remake uh, of Ghostbusters. Uh, anyway, I would watch that. Um, I, but I, I wonder if, to broaden this conversation a little bit, if uh, as backhanded as it is, deplorable as it is that we need that step in the first place, if it could be a valuable stepping stone towards, um, or, or on the contrary, are we going to get locked into that mindset of um, we can only make female-oriented movies if we are essentially... Uh, feminizing pre-existing movies. Well, we're already locked into making blockbusters based on famous IPs, right? So, yeah, men or women, th- that's just the mode. I mean, um, I'm excited for uh, like Wonder Woman and stuff like that because what needs to happen is like usually when they do pick a female 
character or female director for like a blockbuster it's somebody who's proven themselves with action which seems weird or it's this really broad like family comedy sort of mode or like it's so it, it it would seem i think more prudent to me to just like you know make the diehard prequel directed by a woman and just move, move on right isn't that how you win hearts and minds well, you also force people, like, I take delight in seeing MRA types squirm and be like, I will not see an all-female Ghostbusters as if Ghostbusters is, oh, yeah. needs to I be find that very, I find that men, very satisfying it, as well. It was men in the beginning, it should be men to the end, and, like, Paul Feig takes so much shit on Twitter and is constantly throwing it Paul back. Paul Feig also seems to delight in it. Yeah, and I, you know... David, I totally understand what you're saying just about, like, oh, this is the only way we can get women in the movies. You know, taking men's parts, that's, that kind of sucks. But <laughs> I like forcing people. Taking jobs from men. Sort of, jobs. I like forcing people. low-hanging fruit, sort of, like, deceptive progress. Like, the, men are, the men's rights activists are fucking inbred morons. And they're always going to be fucking inbred morons out of Yeah, but you have to force people. You have to force this change. You have to force something that they want to see to change. I think this is a big problem on the internet that we have emotional triumphs over these. We like seeing them squirm and suffer as well we should, but we confuse that for progress. There are always going to be these fucking uh, misogynists and homophobes and transphobic people and racists. They're always going to be there and they're always going to be the same people. We need money. Stop, stop interrupting hey, me, hey, hey. Yeah, stop interrupting We you. need institutional progress. We need it to come from people like us, which is why I always want to stick my foot in my mouth when I say things that are... I'm sure I've said several of them in the segment already that, that <laughs> are about, you know, how I feel like on a personal level, like, oh, you know, I, the movie, I've always thought of film, female filmmakers as just filmmakers and so on. But I, I think that that's not really the full extent of my responsibility. Um, it's about finding the way to express my responsibility and turn it into action. But I think that uh, there, it's an institutional problem. The problem is with the good guys. It's with the people who uh, think they're the good guys and want to be the good guys, but have to uh, create an environment where their ideals can actually be put into practice. And I think, like, Kathleen Kennedy, I don't know what pressure she's under, but, like, that's a massive fuck-up. Like, the Colin Trevorrow thing is, like, a fuck-up of, of all time. Well, hey, hang on. So are we talking about her hiring Colin Trevorrow, or are we talking about how she is interested in female directors, but they've they only directed a single indie movie? That yeah, I mean, and I'm not even... The fact that she's a woman, I find irrelevant. It's the fact that there's someone at that power who has the keys to the biggest franchise in the kingdom, and they're going out there and saying the right things... And then doing the worst possible things. And, like, that's, you know, I feel like it's very easy to say the right things. I think we all know what the right things are to say. Uh, And that's why I think it's so interesting about Katie's question, because my response to her is, like, you shouldn't have to go see the 33. But what is the right thing to do? And, and like, I... But the the one thing I was going to say... David was that um, you know yes forcing people to do something is only think of the, think of the opposition is not is not true change it's it's not a true paradigm shift if you're uh, if if it's if gaming the system or something like that but by forcing people 
to have to go see an all-female Ghostbusters. If they're going to see that Ghostbusters movie and they resist it, but they can't enough because they just love Ghostbusters so much, then you are you are forcing real change because they're going to put their money behind that movie, and then the business starts to change. Like money is going to drive these decisions, and that's probably where it has I, to start but, because the business I, side of it is so rigid. But I think what David was saying is that the, the people who don't want to see Ghostbusters because there's women in it, regardless of the money factor, they're not the ones who have the power to hire a woman to work on the Ghostbusters sequel or something. No, like but that. they're, that's they're, that's always the changing, they're always going to be pieces of shit. I agree that they are changing the audience's like, minds about what they'll accept on screen. I agree with Patches that the, the capacity for change does exist, that there is a percentage of people who uh, are very ignorant and are going to... I mean, this is what so many movies are about. Typically, movies that feel a little archaic now, but it's like the white guy works... It's like American History X. Like, oh, Edward Norton is working in the laundry room in prison with the black guy. And then he's like, hey, black people aren't so bad. Uh, You know, like, that's... You're going to have that experience where someone's going to be like, I hate women. Oh, women, Ghostbusters, the worst. And then they're going to go see the female Ghostbusters and they'll laugh and they'll be like, oh, yeah, maybe I donate all women. But there will always be a percentage of people who are just like there's there's no way and there's no amount of you know female godfathers and female you know that's the only movie i can think of that's ever been made the godfather uh, i mean there are people who but, are upset about there being right. black people in the new star right Wars. yeah like, like these people are always going to be and i'm so sorry yeah, to sorry. women everywhere but these are always going to be these people on social media who are saying the most horrible things to you um and uh uh, and no you can block of, most of them. Yeah, uh, like that contingent is always going to exist, and we shouldn't. We we can't measure our progress by. It's good. It's healthy for all of us to get together and say fuck you to these people. I think it's a great rallying cry. It's great for Paul Feig to do that, and for all of us to be like, yeah, we're all on the same team here. But it's the um, opposite that puts the most pressure on us. There's people who will always say like, why isn't this a woman? And then this is yeah. where this kind of guilt comes from that I addressed to Katie because I felt guilty. I'm like, why haven't we seen these movies and are we doing our part? Because there's a lot of talk and I even put on Twitter because I just was curious if anybody was going to kind of own this and, you know, see these movies because they were female filmmakers. I got zero, like one response. No one, no one was going to do that. Um, yeah. It's a, I don't know. I don't something know, about it perturbs me a little bit, but I don't want to get yeah. too mansplaining or something. I don't feel like we've come up with an answer and i feel like if we had we'd be fooling ourselves so it's a it's a tough thing to answer and god hope there's some great movie directed by a woman being released by a studio in the near future well the real question is dave who is going to direct uh captain marvel (laughs) slytherin i i I do think though before we back out of this conversation that like the marvel thing is that like Marvel has to have a woman direct their movie. Like, they have the power no, to actually... Of course a woman will direct Captain Marvel, right? I mean, Dave Dave is the expert here. I feel yes. like there's no That'll way happen. But isn't it sort of, again, a backhanded step forward if that's... Like, a, you only get to direct yeah, the Yeah, you get movie? to direct the woman one. Where's the woman directing... The, the, the Russo brothers? What the fuck have they done? Their Captain America movie was garbage. Their other movie was garbage. Like, then now they're doing the nine more Marvel movies. Where's the woman directing Thor 3? And where's the woman directing the movie that's so bad they never make any more Marvel movies and she becomes my favorite director? Like, where is... <laughs> the woman who sank Marvel. Like where, where, like they shouldn't just be assigned to the one with the female main character. It is yeah, I, direct I movies. Totally agree. The Carol uh, masterpiece of all masterpieces. 
directed by a man. It's a love, lesbian love story. It can go both ways. The, the, the more men who get hired off of their one Sundance movie uh, to direct a major tentpole, the worse this all looks. Because it, it's a big trend. It's going to keep happening. And uh, women never get the opportunity. And it's really disastrous. Yeah. So do you go see uh, a woman's blockbuster and support her? <laughs> I mean... The cycle. 33. 33. So, so Sundance has... Sun, the festival like Sundance has a lot of responsibility to to make sure that women are getting a fair shake and that they're programming filmmakers that they can put them in a place where we can give them the attention that they need. But if Ava DuVernay wins the directing award at Sundance from middle of nowhere and then gets no offers after that, like what else can Sundance do? You have to hope that that won't happen again. And I think that that was also a white problem because that was a quote unquote black film. And I think that it did not get the sort of exposure that it would have had the cast been white. Um, and so that had a number of different things working against it. Um, but, you know, I think that like that, those platforms need to be, uh, they need to be, um, what's the word? I'm, what's the term I'm looking for here? When uh, uh, equal opportunity platforms. Anyway. Um, uh, what? Affirmative action? <laughs> oh, God. No. Next, next podcast. <laughs> That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday talking about Hunger Games for the last time. I cannot imagine. Great female property directed by... Directed uh, entirely men. Yeah, a a couple of different men, I think. Maybe just two. Anyway, yeah, that's almost over. We'll talk about that. Uh, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the entertainment editor at Thrillist.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And we have a website called FightingInTheWarRoom.com. Post all the episodes. You can share them. You can comment on them. You can leave the names of women who should be directing more movies or cinematographers or screenwriters, all sorts of women. Uh, FightingInTheWarRoom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, And you can find all of us together fighting out of the war room. Whoa. On Facebook at Fighting in the uh, Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA7E on Twitter. Uh, I write at geek.com and latito-review.com. And I also do some podcasting at Fighting in the War uh, Recently, the Thought Bubble, which is about comic books and comic book centric culture, which has been involving a lot of TV, including The Flash, which had a great villain reveal that like kind of shamed Thanos. You would have liked it, Katie. Sure. Fuck Thanos. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And Twitter is also where you can find all of us talking to you, not uh, not, no, not not big topping. Big naming? What was the thing the guy told us we did? Big timing. Remember? I don't know. Big not big, big, big timing, timing anybody. But can I give a quick a quick shout out before we go? Uh, well, hang on. It's at F-I-T-W-R. Oh, sorry. Because I, I, for like, what, five years now, six years now, however long we've been doing this, have... Uh, have Five years. been being dumped on for hating on Marvel, uh, and this briefly came up in a conversation that we had a little earlier in the episode. That uh, on Friday, the Marvel's new Netflix series Jessica Jones goes up, uh, and I've seen the first seven episodes, and I am very, very high on it. And uh, you well, should watch perhaps. it. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. I, yeah, I have also seen some episodes. It's really good. I really, yeah. really enjoy it. So Joanna um, Robinson is wrong. Tweet at her. Wow. At I don't know Joanna if we're allowed to say that. Where she can't defend herself. 
Yeah, seriously. Um, well, you can take to Twitter to tell David whether or not he's right about Jessica Jones, or you can just go there to answer this week's lightning round question. What was it? In honor of Carol, what is the best last shot in a movie? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. <laughs>